We are in the book of Ruth, and we are in the final chapter of the book of Ruth tonight. And if you're new to Scripture, there are the first five books. Those are the books of Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's right before First and Second Samuel. So if you can find that, go ahead and head there to chapter 4. We're going to pray and we'll get into our story. We concluded, God willing, tonight, which is real exciting. And not because I like concluding it, but because of how beautiful the story is and how it concludes. Now, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Bruno would love to give you one. He's even dressed up for the occasion, as we can see. He's looking really smart tonight. Again, um, you're just doing that to get Bruno over to you, just so you'll, you know, you want to give him a hug. Ruth chapter 4. Pray with me, and we'll put all of this together today. Oh Lord, how good you are. What a gift it is to be able to sit down here and relax and and sort of snuggle into your word. Knowing you have something really sweet to speak to us tonight. So let us get it. I pray every person here, regardless of where we are in our walk with you, may we truly get it tonight. Truly minister. Let us just... This just makes so much sense to us, as it should. And I pray that you would tonight, by the power of your Holy Spirit, redeem every second. I just love you, Lord, so much, and I just thank you. Bless, Lord, I pray this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say, as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. But let that Bible be your authority. Uh, a couple quick announcements. I, I know I hadn't given any. Uh, don't, I don't want you to forget that this Sunday is our bring and share. We are, our uh, theme is Panini Pandemonium. And the idea is simple. Uh, bring, if you have one of those grills, those little kind of, you know, George Foreman grills, I love so much. I put my name on it. Uh, you know, get get bring it if you want to, please, and then bring bread and stuff to fill it with. And then once you get all of that, uh, we're gonna just grill up paninis, and uh, it's just gonna be a good time of us all breaking bread together, or gluten-free bread, or whatever it need be. So we just want to let you know. Also, uh, it's not like I normally make an announcement. This is Wednesday, so I can do this on a Wednesday. Uh, I don't want to say who, but there's someone's birthday that's going to be this coming Monday. I don't want to say who because I don't want to embarrass my wife. But just want to let you know that if uh, any of you are interested in doing anything, uh, I, I, I know that I'm not supposed to do, I'm not supposed to do any surprises. I'm not supposed to. So just letting you know that. But uh, she does love chocolate. I just want to make that clear. So, you know, I'm a husband. I'm going to do that. Anyways, and then the following Saturday after that, I want to remind you, is our baptism. We're looking at anyone who's given their life to Jesus. We're not talking about being baptized as a kid or any of that, but if you've 
given your life to Christ and, and you want to make that public profession, Jesus tells us to do that. So uh, I invite you to be a part of that. Again, we'll cover your ticket. I'll be head down to the sea. An unforgettable experience. And I just I can remember so many of you I can remember being standing in the water with. And that's just way, way cool. So anyway, so I want to remind you of that. And then the following day is Jesus night where we spend two hours just praising him at, uh, at the uh, cafe in, in Covent Garden. Uh, it's just a sweet time. Please keep in prayer those we've been inviting that they would come and give their life to Christ. Such a really beautiful thing. And then finally, we are praying about the potential of possibly having an Israel trip in February. So uh, come and talk to me about that. It's like 10, 11 days of just madcap awesome Bible studies and craziness and fun, eating awesome food and just having the time that you'll never forget. So anyways, uh, come and talk to me if you want to know more. Okay, I'm done with all of the announcements. Let's get into the word. Now, here's our story. Uh, it tells us it was in the time of Judges. And the time of Judges, by the way, takes us now roughly between 1100 and 1400 B.C. So that's where we're at. We're roughly 1100 years before the birth of Christ. And during that time, it isn't that what the writer was trying to make sure that we knew was that time stamp, but more so the social stamp, when it tells us that everyone did who, what was right in their own eyes, and that there was no king in Israel. Those were the big things. What we'll find is at the end of the book of Ruth, it'll begin then the book of 1 Samuel. And by, basically, 1 Samuel will introduce two of our kings. It will introduce the first of their physical kings, Saul, and then the second, David, of course. So that will be the end of the time of Judges, basically, when Saul steps on the throne. Or steps on, sits on the throne, I guess. Now, during that time, again, listen, it wasn't that anyone did what was wrong in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The crazy part was that what we read in there sounds so insane, so crazy, it's hard to think that anyone could think what, what, what they were doing was right. And then we look at today and we see the same thing. We see a lot of those same behaviors and people are like, but in their own mind, it's totally justifiable. The idea that it wasn't about not doing something was just that somehow it was it's like I could do anything as long as I could somehow try to figure out a way to say it was right. Then I guess I'm OK. There was no standard of right and wrong. Man, you try to impose a standard of right and wrong on a group of people that are determined to make up their own right and wrong. You will get grave resistance. And certainly we see that. And in the time, if you will, of the giant, the, the, the largest mound of human waste in the middle of it is this diamond of a story of a love story so pure it reflects God's own heart in the middle of all of this. In the middle of people raping and stealing and killing and dismembering and all of these horrible things and serving anything and everything that isn't God. And they're doing all kinds of crazy things and actually saying they're worshiping God by doing it. In the middle of everything of love being abused in any possible way of the word, this love story arises to show us again and again and again that even in the midst of absolute anarchy, there will always be a remnant of something pure in God. But it'll never be the majority. It'll never be the, oh, look how in this is. This was the exception to the rule. And there was a guy. In the time when there was no king in Israel, and the guy's name is Elimelech, which means my God is the king. A funny name for a guy during a time when there was no king. 
He has a wife. Her name is Pleasant Naomi, and they have two kids, sick and tired. Machlon and Chilion. That's what Chilion. That's what their names mean. Sick and tired. And there is no bread in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. So they head then east to Moab, or today's Jordan, and there they are uh, trying to sustain themselves. And while they're there, the two boys, sick and tired, marry. They both marry uh, Moabite girls. And ultimately, the husband and both the boys die. The mother now uh, wants to, uh, we, she hears that there is bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem. She wants to go back to her homeland. She has two daughter-in-laws. Both boys are dead. Her husband is dead. And one of the daughters goes back to her home. But the other one says, look it, I'm in this for life. I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. And where, you, where, I, where you die, I'll be buried. I'm in this for the long haul. So the two of them return back. And they return back now. During that time, of course, the wife has had, the, the mother in law, the Jewish mother in law, has had to sell her property. We'll see that in our text, of course. Now, there is provision made for poor people and strangers in the house of Israel, in the land of Israel, that would not be in the surrounding territories like Moab. And there are two things specifically that God ordained from the Torah, uh, in both from the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus, if you will. One of them is, is that you're only allowed to harvest your entire property or your property once. Everything left over after that, the poor people get. Secondly, you're not allowed to harvest the corners because you want to allow that as well for the poor person and the stranger. Now, could you imagine if God said you can harvest everything but the middle, how you would protect that? <laughs> But the idea that God says it's the corners, the area you would be least likely to actually try to fight over. Now, you weren't allowed to come and pull in your, your lorry and just try to harvest it, but you were allowed to go and get a, day's, get a day's food out of a day's work. And so this girl, the daughter-in-law, goes, well, hey, looks like I can actually do something to help here around the house. Why don't I go and try to do this gleaning thing that you guys have provided? So she does. And we read, so she happened. Now, under this, at this point, please understand, you have two very heartbroken girls. They've both lost their husbands. And they're both, I mean, what they have in common, if you think about it, they don't have their heritage in common. What they have in common is their grief, their pain. It is interesting what kind of friends that brings. They both know the grief, the pain of losing someone they love. When they come back, they come back. They could have just shriveled up and died in that house. Matter of fact, Naomi, that's what she basically tries to do. She tries to, she says, the Almighty has been bitter towards you. She changes her name, if you will. She's like, don't call me Naomi or Pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And it's interesting because understand what bitterness is, is our choice. Bitterness will always be your choice. When something hard happens, Beside that hard thing is the poison of bitterness. You can choose to drink or not. The problem is, bitterness makes nothing better. Someone has hurt you. Someone has really hurt you. Situations have disappointed you. And it is so easy at a moment like that to think, well, I have a right to drink bitterness. But would God ever want you? That would be like somebody stabbed you and left you the knife to continue to drive the blade through over and over and over again. 
Nowhere in Scripture is bitter ever a health, bitterness ever a healthy thing. And all bitterness is, is building your home on the hurt, on the property of that hurt, on that disappointment, that grief. Letting it, def- letting it define you instead of refine you. Well, she has no idea. She hasn't read the book of Ruth. It hasn't been written yet. She has no idea the amazing gift that God has set before her she has yet to discover. And so this girl now is just trying to take care of mom, taking care of bitter mother-in-law nonetheless. And she heads into the property. And now we meet our hero in chapter 2. His name is Boaz, which means strengthens or with strength. And I love the way he shows up on stage, if you will. He starts and his first words are, the Lord bless you to his workers. And they're like, hey, God bless you too, boss. And you kind of get the idea, this guy is the deal. And he is. And immediately he stops and goes, whoa, 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 who that? And he sees this girl, but please understand, she has been working all day. I mean, she's not made up. She's not smelling good. She's not looking good. The only thing she had about her that could have drawn him was her virtue. Please hear that, ladies. Could you imagine some man... I'm talking to you single ladies out there right now, and if you will, maybe the ladies, married ladies as well. Could you imagine if the, that the man who was to fall for you fell for your virtue? You'd be unafraid of getting married and what they would look what their response to you the night you know the, the the morning after it would be you'd be just concerned about what would if them ever seeing you without makeup or your hair undone or whatever if the one thing that drew a man to you ladies was your virtue they would do whatever they could to protect it invest in it and you would do whatever you could too as well they certainly wouldn't be trying to get you to give it up for the purpose of something they would call love and this man looks and she's sweaty and she's stinky and her hair's a mess and so forth and she's dirty and she's a Moabite and he looks and he's like, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's that girl from Moab came back with the mother-in-law. Remember that whole story? They were gone a decade. She came back and just look at her. She's worked until noon and then she took a break, but then she didn't go home. She went back into the field. This girl really knows how to work. And he's like, oh, and then everything from that point on shows us this guy's got it for her. Now, please understand, he already wants her and... And we're not talking about she, he wants to, you know, hold her and such. He wants more than that. He wants her. You can tell because he's drawn to her virtue. And everything from that point on shows us these hints of this desire he has to be with her and understand he wants her before she even knows he's there. And I love that. What a role he plays. And so he starts saying, now listen. And he calls to her, his daughter, daughter, listen. Stay here. Don't go to other fields. Stay here. Stay with me and be safe and be refreshed. And if we could sort of update it today, it'd say like, help yourself to the corporate fridge. Hey, look at when you need anytime you want, the water's there for you. And then he tells the guys, listen, when you harvest, leave stuff. I mean, don't just grab everything. Leave it behind for her to stumble on. And, and it's like, and it, we as the workers, we as the servants of our, of our master here would look and go, oh, that guy's got it for her bad. Look at how he's doing all of this. Everything about him is now revolving. Everything from that point on, everything from that point on in the whole story revolves around her in his life. Consider, read through the story, you realize everything he does is, is based on her now. From that point on, leave this stuff. 
And then it's like he's like, don't, don't sit there, don't sit there. Hey, there's a space right here. And he come and sit here. Oh, and, and, you know, if we were the servants, we'd be like, oh, that's the God of bad, right? You know, he jones it. And, and I love watching this because we, we, we get to watch this story and we get to see this situation. And, and he loads her up with goods and he goes, now go home and take care of your mother-in-law as well. Make sure she's taken care of. This isn't just about you. Anybody, listen, anybody that's a friend of yours now is a friend of mine. And I love that about this guy. And then in that, she goes back. And, 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 and her, and her mother-in-law is like, whoa, where did you get this? This is an awful lot of barley. And she's like, wow, I was in this field and this guy is like, Bobo, Bozo, Bono, Boaz, Bo, yeah, Boaz. Oh, oh my goodness, that's a relative. And you don't understand, in our culture, that that's somebody that could actually marry you for the purpose. Remember that dead husband? I'm sorry to bring it up that way. But hey, remember that guy? Well, he can marry you and have a child in his name and redeem our whole property. Our whole life could be changed. In essence, if you really think about it, what he's doing is he would actually pay the debt and adopt them into his family. That's kind of what he's doing here. And then she gives this advice. And I love this because mom is steeped in this traditional religion in a way where, the, where she, what she doesn't know, please hear me, what she doesn't know is that he's already in love with her. That's what she doesn't know. Hey, you give your life to Christ and you find somebody that really isn't walking with Jesus, but they're trying to play the Christian game and they'll try to lay that same heavy trip on you. And they'll be like, what you need to do to make God happy. And that's what she says. She says, listen, and it's decent advice for getting a man. Take a bath, put on some perfume, put on your nicer clothes. Hey, you know, that, 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 it's not bad advice. It just doesn't work for a guy who's already in love. But she does give this as the fourth thing. And then throw yourself at his feet. See, we as the reader, we know the story already. We know his heart. We're like, you know what, honey? You didn't have to do any of that. And because it's going to happen in the middle of the night, he's not going to see what you look like. He's not going to be able to smell you next to a mountain of barley. He's not going to see how, you know, whether you've bathed or not. He's not going to see the makeup or the perfume or all the nice clothes you have on. I mean, matter of fact, he's going to be laying there. She puts herself at his feet. He rolls over and he gets startled, which tells me he's not a player or this wouldn't wake him up at all. This is a new thing for him. He's like, whoa, 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 someone's at my feet. Who is it? And she's like, it's Ruth, it's Ruth, it's Ruth, don't shoot. That kind of thing. And I kind of like that. And she's like, look it, I'm yours if you want me. And he's like, oh, you're so blessed. You could have gone so many other places to look, but you came here. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll happily do that. I will happily. It's like, it's like that moment where she's like, I'm yours, and not some really weird, perverted way. And his heart starts to sing. He's like, honey, that's all I've been waiting for. I've been dreaming of this moment where you would say yes. You know, I'm dreaming of this. And you made it easy on me in that sense. So I'll tell you what, two things. First of all, stay here through the night. Now, I remind you, it's pitch black. He's next to a mountain of barley. He's not smelling her. He's not seeing her, but he's hearing her. And he hears her heart. And that's all he needs. He's like, but I don't want you leaving in the middle of the night because it wouldn't be safe for you. And I want to keep you safe. But when the sun starts to rise, let's get you out of here because I don't want anybody starting a rumor about what they could have said we did in the middle of the night that we didn't. Listen, listen, listen. Garters of virtue. We need to be this. 
It isn't just, hey, well, I'm going to spend the night at your house, but we're really not going to do anything. Hey, look at what about the neighbors who saw that? And again, I'm not trying to make you paranoid. I'm saying be a guardian of your virtue and other people's virtue. Hey, listen, we're going to be more careful than that here because I don't want anybody making up rumors. If they've got to make up a rumor and they've got to come up with crazy stories, crazy things to pull it around, if that's the best they can come up with, you're doing okay. But if you give them ammunition to kind of bend a little bit and make it something crazy, well, that's another story. Well, now this girl comes back. And as this girl comes back, he goes, oh, but there is one problem. See, it has to be the closest relative, and I'm the second closest relative. There's actually one other guy first. And, 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 and if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. But if he isn't, I'm all in, is what he tells me. And he goes, oh, you're not going back empty-handed. So he sends her back. And what does he send her back with this time? Six ephahs, 132 liters, 29.04 gallons, if you will, 61.32 kilograms worth of kilos worth of barley. Now imagine, and then he goes, now imagine, that's why it says he laid it on her. Imagine he dumps all of this on her. This is 145 plus pounds of, of, of barley. And then he goes, now, get out of here quietly. Right? And don't tell anyone you were here. I mean, she's like, where you where you been? Nowhere! Right? I mean, carrying that much barley because he's going to give her more than she can possibly use so she can share it with everybody. And that's the way it is. And you can see how this plays out. Then we get to this chapter. Now, here's the deal. That guy has to, this boy, and, and when mom sees this, mother-in-law, she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Clearly he said yes. Clearly, I can see it by the blessing he's laid on you. Well, that guy is not going to rest till this gets done. Oh, I love that. So what we have in chapter 4 is, what's going to happen? Well, that's where we get to. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, a close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now don't miss this, because the gate is where things are solved. That is where the legal transactions take place. Lot was sitting at the gate in Genesis 19, by the way. If you remember, the sons of Jacob were trying to make a deal with Shechem. Ultimately, they wound up killing them all, so it was a bad deal. That was Genesis 34. And there is this, the gate is sort of like the, the county seat. And with that, there is where he sits, and it says, that close relative walked by. Now, the way I read it, and please forgive me, but this is one of those places where I'm like, well, that's an interesting word to choose in the translation. Boaz said, come aside, friend. Sit down here. And he came aside and sat down. The problem is the word friend. The word there is the almoni. Try that. Almoni. Yeah, that's a really fun word, right? It literally means so-and-so. Such and such. It's translated three different times in the Old Testament. And each time, other than there, it's like this such and such a place. So-and-so. And the reason I say that is, it isn't like he's like, hey, old buddy, give me a hug. He's like, yo, so-and-so. And, and, and I, the reason I say that is, is that when I, in Israel, when I hear someone talk like this, there's only two reasons for it. One is, the person's already done something ignominious, something dishonorable, so you don't want to mention their name. Because it says in Proverbs, for instance, the, the name of the wicked or rot. Or the other is, you really don't want an intimate relationship with them for some reason. Now, interesting, because in the scripture here, we're never going to read the guy's name. But he's like, he's like we might say, hey, you, yo. Rob, come here. And I kind of get the idea here that Boaz is really serious about nailing this thing down. And, I, and you know where he wants to go with this. So he took ten men 
of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. Now imagine you, imagine you were this other guy. You don't know what's going on. The guy's like, hey, come here. And you sit down. And then he has 10 guys sit down, which means now it's official. It was required, by the way, to have 10 guys to make something official. 10 guys, by the way, the term is a minion. So obviously the moment they all sat down, they turned yellow and spoke really, no, I'm just kidding. But it's, and the reason was there was supposed to be one for every command, by the way, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 38 when Abraham's talking to God about what God would destroy and wouldn't, and he chisels God down to 10 instances. If there were 10 righteous men, you wouldn't destroy the city. So the, Israel thinks, okay, 10 righteous men. To get a synagogue, you need 10 righteous men to start a synagogue, by the way. And they're called a minion. So imagine he's like, hey, sit down. And you sit down and all of a sudden all these judges sit next to you. You're like, uh, what's going on? And they said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of these inhabitants and these elders. We're going to make it official. They're all right here. Of my people, if you'll redeem it, redeem it. If you'll not redeem it, well then tell me that I may know because there's no one but you to redeem it and I'm next. In other words, you're the only one in my way to redeem it. And and then then the guy said, I'll redeem it. And you can imagine Boaz is like, it's not what I want. Did you see how many times the word redeem was in that verse? The term redeem, ga'al, means, and by the way, it wasn't a, a stranger couldn't redeem. It had to be the closest relative. Somebody of your blood. This is fundamental. Because when people ask me, why did God come in the flesh? Why didn't God just wave His hand and purify sin or whatever? Because God set it up so that the only way to buy you out, to redeem you, had to be from someone of your own blood. Hebrews says, inasmuch as the children partook in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in the same that he through that death might redeem us, deliver us from the one who had the power of death. That's the devil himself. See, Jesus knew that if he was going to redeem us, he had to be, the term is Gaal, and Gaal is a kinsman redeemer. It's one who could redeem you that's of your type. That's the deal. So he's like, hey, by the way, 15 times in this we're going to read the word redeem. I think that that's an important point. Now listen, for what it's worth. In the book of Leviticus, verse chapter 25, it says, in verse 25, if one of your brethren becomes poor, sells a possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Redeeming relative. There's our kinsman redeemer. So he goes, look it. You're the only one in my way. There's a piece of property that was sold. Now imagine this guy, he's looking and he's going, okay, at this moment, all there is is this, this old widow. And this old widow has this property. And you could see the guy going, well, if I buy the property when this gal kind of kicks off, and I'm not trying to be crude, but he's like, if when she kind of passes off the scene, I just get the property, my estate's larger. I get it. Then Boaz says, but, verse 5, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now, this is a very different story. Because he says, listen, in Deuteronomy 25, they wanted the family name to follow on. So, if all of your sons had passed away, was kind of the idea in something like this, 
You know, like, well, traditionally in 25, it's, it's, in Deuteronomy 25, it's called the law of the leveret marriage. Your older brother marries a girl, but he dies before having a son. You actually go and impregnate this gal and name the child after dad so that family line follows on. Which, by the way, I'm so glad that doesn't take place today because, boy, I would be very, very concerned about who my brothers would marry. And if they were, I'm like, you better have kids right away. And the idea of that Deuteronomy 25 leveret marriage is we want to make sure that that family line doesn't extinguish. So he says, on that day, you're going to be responsible for the Deuteronomy 25 leveret marriage. It's not just getting the land. You get a bride out of it, too. Verse 6, the close relative says, I cannot redeem it for, for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem the right of redemption for yourself. I can't redeem it. Now, realize what this guy is saying. The one closest to Naomi is saying, I'm all interested in the land. I'm just not interested in people. And there are religions exactly like that. Taking the land by the sword and claiming it, sticking your flag in the ground for your God. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. Please hear me. This is really, what's made really clear here is the difference. Hear me, hear me, hear me. One is the means and one is the end. And that will always be the difference. Traditionally, I might say, from an outside of a Jesus perspective, people are the means to something else. They're the route. To pleasure, to stuff, to importance, to self-importance, to self-esteem. I'm going to use you to get what I really want. You are the vehicle to get it. There's the problem. On the other side of that, God's view is people are the end. Your stuff is used to get to people. Your talents are used to get to people. Your gifts are used to get to people. Because people are the end. Here's the problem. I take that mindset and I go to God. And you know what happens with me and my walk with God? God is the means to everything instead of being the end. You know, we sang, Here I am, Jesus. You are my reward. In other words, and that comes, by the way, from David crying out in Psalms and saying, You are my exceeding great. You are my portion, my lot, and my inheritance. Listen, in the end of it all, it's like, I don't go to God for peace. Because if I was just going to God for peace, once I got peace, I could leave him behind. It's like taking the bus to get to where you need to go. I want God to be my peace. And that's different. The one thing I learned when I read the Gospel of John, I mean, and it took me years to get there, was to realize that Jesus didn't say, I give the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. He didn't say, I give the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what I realized is sooner or later, it wasn't that I went to Jesus for these things. What I did instead was I actually went to Jesus to be those things and my relationship with him blossomed. Because now it became about him instead of the stuff. Now the difference between Boaz, our hero in the story, and this other guy who we don't even get a name. The the ironic thing is this guy is not going to invest in this because he wants to salvage his name and we don't even get it. Isn't that the fun part? He's like, look, I can't blow my inheritance. I want to guard my own name in this. I'm like, good job, buddy, because we don't even know what it is. The other guy, Boaz, and he's like, look, the people would have been, the, the, the land was the end. 
On the other side, but Boaz was like, the land isn't the point. The people are the point. I don't care about the land. I already have enough land. I mean, people were in my land already harvesting. The thing that, that I'm missing is I'm missing Ruth. And I want Ruth. And this is what Jesus says. In, in Matthew, 7, or Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a guy who walked through a field. And when he, was, he walked through the field, he saw a treasure hidden in that field. And because he loved the treasure, because he said, I want this, he bought the whole land. And I say, well, what's that treasure? Well, you are. That's the point. That's the beauty in all of this. God so loved the world. But it wasn't that he loved the cosmos in the sense of just the universe or, wow, what a pretty globe. It's blue. And it's, you know, I mean, what he loved was you. That's what he wanted. And he'll give anything. And it's like, if I have to buy everything, I'll buy everything. But I want you. <laughs> You've got to be the part of the package or it's not worth it to me. We read, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, scorning its shame. And understand, the only joy that could be set before him was you. Everything, like Boaz, my Jesus, you're everything. Why did he invent peaches or bananas or, or Thai food or a towel? Why did he invent pasta? Or why did he invent whatever it be? Fondue, if you wish. I'm just trying. You know, why did he, because, because somewhere, it wasn't like he went, oh, I just can't wait to see cheese drip off of Hugo's face. It was like, he's like, I wait till Hugo gets this. I mean, do you think God painted a sunset so he could go, wow, I just need a little more color in my day. I mean, or do you think it's because it's like, I'm just really hoping today, Anna will look out the train just at the right moment and she'll look and go, wow, look at that sky. He painted that for me. God's like, it's too quiet in here. I need to make birds sing. Really? Or maybe it's, you know what? I'm really hoping that Angel will open her window just enough so she could hear that this morning and realize I wrote that song for her. I could make light reflect off of the sea in such a way that it shoots light and color all over you so that Marcia can go, wow, this is a beautiful place. Is, my, is your God as romantic as mine? Because just like Boaz, his entire mindset, and we read this, that his thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore for us, he is obsessed with you. And every motion he makes is about a relationship with you. Every motion. Every song, every color in the sky, even the voice of a friend that lightens your day a little bit. It's just a sheave you trip over that God said, leave that for her to trip over so that she could actually see how well she's taken care of. Even this moment right now is a sheave God intends for you to stumble on and go, you really do love me. Now at that moment, just like you, at that moment, please hear me, Ruth could have gone, yeah, but things are really rough and I've got this bitter mother-in-law and it was like really bad and I lost my husband. She could focus on all of these rough moments that she could miss the things that are left before her to show that someone still loves her. And she could be so caught up in the pity of the moment. And I'm not trying to belittle hard times, but well, in this sense, I'm trying to put them into perspective. We could get so consumed in those moments that we can't even see the one who's trying to point. I mean, how much more could God do than paint the entire sky for you? How much bigger does God have to get for you to see it? And he goes, hey, I'll speak in a little still small voice or I'll paint the entire sky for you. The infinite scroll that sits above you. So you'll look up out of this moment 
and see something so much bigger. And you just want to keep drinking that bitterness. Why? What's it doing to you? It's blinding you from all of those things. Praise God. We never read Ruth did that. So here in the story, what Boaz really wants is her. He'll take the land, but the land's only because it comes parcel with her. But what he really wants is her. That's all he really wants. Verse 7 says, Now the custom was in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal, gave it to another, and that was the confirmation in Israel. Now, it's actually a little deeper than that. I mean, in this sense, this was kind. In Deuteronomy 25, that lever at marriage, what if the guy says no? Well, here's what it says. 25.8, Deuteronomy 25.8. The guy, if he says, you know, you're supposed to marry and take care of it, have a child for, uh, for this, you know, for the family. It says, well, if he says no, then the elders of this city shall call him and speak to him. And if he stands firm, in other words, they're trying to convince him, and he stands firm and says, I do not want it, I don't want her. I don't want to, yeah, you have her. You know? Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be so called in Israel the house of him who had the sandal removed. So it's like, hey, Mr. Shoeless Spitface. There's the idea. Now, obviously, the idea is simple. That sandal was to walk on ground that was yours. You're removing it, and you've, you've lost your footing in doing so. You've shamed. You've been shamed and shunned. So with that, notice, there's, it's, it's interesting because in this story, it doesn't seem like Boaz is really, his deal is not about shaming this other guy. He could have, he could have spit, he could have said, hey, let's get Ruth over here. Ruth, go ahead and spit in this guy's face. But how that would have hurt Ruth? Instead, he's like, you know what? I'm so consumed, hear me on this, I'm so consumed with Ruth, I just want everything out of my way. I'm not going to get distracted by this. Because then I would, that's, I spend less time with Ruth. How many times does it happen in our own walk with Jesus? Where if you really, if we're going to be honest about it, it's like, I just want to be right with you, but then something happens and we get consumed in this person and this thing, and, we, and, we just, and we're all about this thing, but it, what it's doing is it's keeping us from just being about this again. And, and you can see the enemy going, yeah, get bitter, and yeah, grab a hold of that, and just think about that, and let that destroy your marriage, and let that destroy your friendships, and let that, sure, keep drinking that. And God's like, I just want to be with you, please. Let's just drop all that, let's just... Because I'm not going to be distracted by those things. I'm going to let it be about you and me. If Jesus were distracted for a moment, could it have been when he was hanging on the cross and like, hey, if you're really the Christ, come off the cross. And if he'd come off the cross, we would have all gone to hell. Think about that temptation. But Jesus could have come off the cross and gone, bam, and just smacked the guy in the head and go, no, and then get back up there. But the bottom line is, it wasn't his job to do that. He submitted to the Father, and he wasn't going to get vengeance on someone the Father didn't say go for I am so thankful for his self-control. Aren't you? And I want to be like him. Let's wrap this around. It's all right. There's Boaz standing there with our minion. So he has this thing official. And he's standing there with a sandal. And it isn't his. Now, guys, aren't you thankful we've kind of progressed in the way that we do business? I don't know about some people giving me their nasty sandal with no socks. You know, just kind of, okay. 
You know? And then I remind you, this point, now think about this guy. This, what's he going to do from this point? It wasn't like he planned this whole business meeting, right? He was walking somewhere and he's like, hey, yo, 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 so-and-so. Yo, you, bro, over here. And he leaves hopping on one sandal. But that sandal had to be the most beautiful sandal for the moment to Boaz. Because what this says is, I get my girl. This thing. This nasty, wretched thing. Well, that just tells me I get my girl. So Boaz says in verse 9, let's make sure this deal is sealed. You are witnesses this day that I bought all that was Elimelech and all that was Chilon and Mahomes. That's the two sons. Sick and tired. Tired and sick. From the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, I have acquired as my wife. You guys are all there. You see this. To perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead would not be cut off from among his brethren, from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Now what's clear is, he doesn't have a problem. He's rich enough that he's not concerned about losing an inheritance. Look at Your witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we're witnesses. We see that this is all about you getting your bride. The Lord make the woman who was coming like the house of Rachel and Leah. That's, by the way, the, if you remember, the, the mothers of the twelve tribes, if you will, and their handmaidens. Handmaidens. And the two built the house of Israel, that you may prosper in Ephrathah, which is the place of Bethlehem, and be as famous in Bethlehem. That your house may be like the house of Perez. Perez, by the way, very bizarre story. Guy had two sons, well, three. He had two sons that had daughters. Uh, well, he had a son that got married and he died because he was wicked. And so she married the second through this whole situation and he died. And then he was like, I don't want to give him my third. And ultimately she dresses like a prostitute and the dad steps in and gets her pregnant. And then he wants to kill her because she's pregnant. And she's like, oh yeah, well the guy who actually gave me these and they were his, right? I mean, that was, it's another awesome story. But the whole point of it was somewhere in it, well, why would that be here? Because this girl, even in the most bizarre of circumstances, opposite of our love story here, the family still stepped in and made it fruitful for the lineage of Judah. Well, we'll see why. Because Perez, by the way, means breakthrough. We'll see that here in a moment. So, may you be, may you be authoritative and fruitful. May you have the most blessed marriage. From Tamar Bora to Judah. Because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went in her and the Lord gave her conception. Notice, by the way, can I just say conception is a gift. If God gives it, it's a gift. And she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. Now notice, remember she said, I'm not pleasant, I'm bitter. And everyone else is going, oh, you are blessed. As they left you, God gave you a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and boy is it. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. This daughter-in-law of yours, Ruth, by the way, I remind you, means friend. Naomi took the child later on her bosom and became a nurse. I don't know how that works. Verse 17. Also, the neighbor women gave him the name, him a name, saying, This is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obid, which means he serves. He's the father of Jesse, the father 
of David. David, King David, that we're going to read in the next book. The king for which our Messiah would come? Absolutely. Which means then that David had a dad named Jesse who had a dad named Obed who had a dad named Boaz. This love story was more than just two amazing people being in love. It was actually the great-grandparents of King David. And then he ends with this. Now again... It's easy to kind of go, oh, okay, here's our genealogy. And it starts from Perez. It doesn't start from Judah, but it starts from Perez. Genealogy of Perez. Perez got Hezron. Hezron got Ram. Ram got Aminadab. Aminadab got Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Yeshi. And Yeshi begat David. Big deal. Okay, so I get it. But why start with, with this guy Perez? Because Perez means to break through. Hezron means the wall of isolation. Ram means exalted or the raised up. Aminadab means the noble kinsman or noble kinsman. Nachshon means divine. Salmon means clothed with. Boaz, I remind you, means strength. Obed means he serves. Yeshi means to possess. And David means beloved. My beloved or the beloved. Is it not just a lineage? Well, what if I were to read the names? Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aninadab, Nachshon, Salmon, Boaz, Oved, Yeshi, and David. We get this. To break through the wall of isolation, the exalted noble kinsman, divine, clothed with strength, he served. To possess his beloved. And I go, oh, that's the story of Ruth. But it is also the story of Jesus. The noble, divine, becomes kinsman to us, serves and surrenders so that he can redeem or get his beloved. That's the story of Jesus. Here in our story of Ruth, And it is this, God wants to let us know tonight, He loves you and He wants you. And my prayer tonight for every one of us is when we go and head home, that that we would be keen and aware of these little things He's leaving all around us. These sheaves that says He loves you. The colors and the sounds and the sights and the smells. Yeah, some of the smells. Okay, some of them remind us we live in a fallen world. But I get the idea here that what God wants us to say is, look at, I love you. You can either be so consumed in the thing around you that you want to be bitter or spite over, or you can open your eyes and see that I love you. And tonight I want to cover you in that love. And I want to let you know I never stop thinking about you. And in the midst of a time where it is social anarchy, spiritual pandemonium, at a time where everybody thinks that they're so right for the way that they promote their thing, and it's like, oh, we promote tolerance, unless it's you, because we don't tolerate you because you're intolerant in our opinion. It is amazing how everyone's thing is like their thing, and they're the only ones right. And then they look at us and go, how dare you think that way? And we're trying to say, my God is in love with you, and you need to say yes to Him. What if Ruth had said no? And Boaz was like, I just love you and I want you. And she would have gone, no, not interested. 
It would have been a horrible story and we would not have had our king or Messiah. But God knew. What do you want to say no to? Hey, look at there's there is obviously there's the obvious no. God's like, I just want to love you, and you're like, no. But then there's also the, if you will, the subtle no, but it looks the same to God. And I know this because I'm a parent. When you're actually saying to someone you love, hey, this is what needs to happen, and they say, okay, but you know that okay doesn't mean anything. What you know that means is, please go away, stop telling me this, because I have my own thing. And that own thing can be our bitterness. That own thing can be our position, our situation. And you're like, you don't know, man, I'm damaged goods. I'm used. And I mean, these are bad. Are they bad because you want them to be bad? Because God wants to change that. Well, what if he actually wants to heal you tonight? And I really believe God brings us into a season where he really wants to heal people. Where you actually can't be broken anymore. Would you like that? You know, to be honest, some people don't. Remember the man that was at the pool of Bethesda? And Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? And you know what? You know this because there are men out there and gals out there with cups out. And you're like, do you really want to be well? And they're like, no. Some, if they're going to be honest with you. They're like, no, I just want your pound. Please don't let that be you. Do you want to be well? Do you want to get engulfed in this kind of love? I want you to get engulfed in this kind of love. We could walk out of here and we would not be even hesitant when someone asks, why do you have that goofy smile on your face? And you just go, Jesus. Jesus, because he loves me and there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to compare. And he'll never leave me nor forsake me. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, his. And every thought he thinks that outnumber the sand on the shore. Every thought he thinks is of me. What you got. And he loves to instill within me virtue. My prayer tonight for you and for me. We would fall in love with his love. And that he would be the end of all of our searching. That he would be the end of all of our desires. Not the means, but the end. Not the driver, but the destination. Pray with me, would you? On this night, this cool night after a warm day here, April, We come to you, God, and we ask. We ask for you to do something revolutionary. We can get so caught up in the politics and the protocols and the practices of what it means to look Christian that we could forget the most important thing, the person. But tonight, you've thrown in our face this story one last time. One more time. Where we are reminded again of your infinite love for us. Your perfectly, beautifully obsessed love for us. That if it would be anyone else, it would be creepy and weird, but for you it's awesome. 
And we recognize without you, we're filthy and stinky and tired and not very marketable. But every thought you think involves our relationship with you. Every sky you paint, every song that's sung by those around us, by those things around us, every flower you grow around us is to remind us. And we confess to you, we can get so caught up in drinking poison of the moment that we don't stop to see these things and listen and, and listen for them because our minds are already too full of spite. Our eyes are already full of rehearsing scene after scene of vengeance. And we're exhausted from it. Ironically, we're fighting, we're fighting you and then calling ourselves victims. But tonight, we want to worship you for real with a yes in our hearts to say, look, and I recognize you won't rest until we're yours. You won't relent. You have no interest in relenting. No interest in stopping. Your entire drive is to draw us deeper and right into you. So, do so tonight. Jesus, we recognize you loved us and wanted us so bad it killed you. Because someone had to pay for our sins and you were not interested in spending eternity away from us. Thank you for making that choice to die on the cross and not come off of it. To take the torture we rightly deserve. And in that same realm, how deep and great and beautiful is your love that you would and raising from the dead offer us a brand new life. Price is paid. You've dismantled the law against us, the condemnation, the verdict, by having it paid in full. And we want to say yes to you. You've given us every reason to say yes. Forgive us for even hesitating any time. Tonight, make it real, I pray. So yours tonight, forevermore, we're yours. May we learn to live and delight in your delight and to live in your love and to thrive in your presence. Pray for those who need healing right now. Their hearts have been broken and, and really it's been circumstances, it's been personal weaknesses, it's been failures with them or around those around them. And there have been lies and there have been disappointments or whatever it be. And we recognize tonight it's only keeping us from thriving in you. And even if we don't have the strength to pull them off of us, we give you permission to pull these things off of us and rescue us from this collapsed building of our own dissident hearts. And set us free tonight to be perfect and pure in your sight. Unencumbered. Free to love you and dance in your presence without any shackles upon our ankles. 
Our love story is even greater than this one of Ruth's. And we see that's the greatest love story that's ever and will ever be. And we just want to tell you thank you. We're so thankful. So now, may we live in that happily ever after. For real. Unencumbered, free from bitterness. Pure before you. Absolutely secure in your love. And delighting in your abundance. Delighting in you is the end of all of our reward. In Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, woo every one of us. Open our ears and eyes now. To see your great love, to hear your great love, to feel your great love, to know your great love tonight. With the hints and traces and sheaves you will leave before us. May the rest of our life be exploring those. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, beloved, for the privilege tonight of being able to be in the Word with you, for the honor of being your pastor. Amen. Go be sheaves to each other.